0: Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Hey
1: everyone, um, this is Jason and I'm um, here with Paul and we are recording a, uh, a just a brief podcast. Well, I always say it's going to be brief and then and you never know how brief it's going to be, but the... Um, <laughs> we're uh, we're recording a, a conversation about our upcoming class that's uh, entitled, I think it's NTT 215, uh, Forgiveness and Reconciliation in Paul, and it's a study of the books of Ephesians and Philemon. Of course, Philemon is usually uh, more, is tied to the book of Colossians, and we probably could have done Colossians or Ephesians, but Ephesians had some more of the pieces we really wanted to take apart. Paul, we did this class very differently. In fact, we hadn't even chosen a book to use until maybe our third or fourth conversation. We don't have any lectures. It's uh, We do have some recordings of some dialogue, some conversation that we had, where we just kind of read the passages in Ephesians and Philemon and then just sort of talked about them. I, I think one of the things I, that came out is we kind of decided we were going to rather than read some commentary, we were going to read these books theologically through the theology that we have at, at forging plowshares and try to get at how the gospel addresses issues of uh, how, it, how it addresses forgiveness and reconciliation, how it addresses evil in, in the way of the kingdom. What were your thoughts on approaching it that way?
0: Oh, I think I enjoyed the process of this class more than any other. The dialogue, I think, putting it together in that way just made it uh, so easy to, to do the class. And and in the conversations, iron, iron sharpening iron, I hope there was two pieces of iron there anyway. <laughs> it came out with, uh, I, I thought, a lot of uh, crisp and really good information. To my mind, I, maybe I'm... Uh, pretty simple on this. It just seemed that as we were preparing this class that just providentially that the situation in the world was such with the the COVID-19, but particularly the death of George Floyd and the rise of the uh, an awareness and consciousness literally on the streets, that it so matched yeah. what we were putting together and what the books of Ephesians you know it with its apocalyptic kind of understanding mixed with the understanding of Philemon in which you have the equivalent of of a black life and what do you do does this black life matter is really the question that's coming out in the the putting those two books together and how you affirm that? How you get there, in Paul, through Paul's theology? I think that that just sort of naturally arose in the, the conversations we had, in the blogs that we've done, in the various podcasts that we put up, but in the in the dialogue. So yeah, this has been just a, a, a fabulous putting this together, and I think it will show for those who participate in the module.
1: I remember when, um, years ago, uh, when you and Faith were really laying out the Plowshares plan and what you were wanting to do and, and that this these courses, modules, were going to be a, uh, a, a piece of that. And we started working out, um, you know, 12 or 13, the uh, topics that we really wanted to try to address. One of the pieces that I... Um, had done a lot of thinking about largely because of some of my experiences with uh, injustice and I'm not I, I certainly am not trying to place the things that have happened to me on the same level as uh, somebody like George Floyd or um, you know hundreds of years of black oppression but what one of the things you and I have both sort of talked about on multiple occasions is having experienced a form of injustice has made us, have to think differently than those who don't. I remember being told after uh, being treated unjustly, being told that my my job was to just forgive. Now, mind you that the person who I was supposed to forgive um, also didn't do anything wrong, but you're not being very forgiving. <laughs> You've got to be more forgiving. And it, it, I had to do a lot of thinking on what is, oh. it, is the cross of Christ is the call to forgive. It does that mean that we just ignore the problems and the injustices of the world? Is that what Jesus was saying on the cross, "Father forgive them"? Was he saying, "Oh no, this this is uh, this isn't really happening, this is no big deal"? And did that mean that people were automatically reconciled to God whether or not they acknowledged the evil that they had done? Well, no. That Forgiveness uh, is releasing someone from a debt, releasing someone from the burden of repayment of, of the debt. But reconciliation comes when the initial wrong is addressed and then there can be reconciliation. And so we're looking at, I mean, right now, this moment when so much terrible has happened for so long and how many innocent black people in the news have we heard in recent years who have just been murdered or gunned down or uh, beaten or strangled? Or And, I mean, just last week, five people were found hanging from trees and they're trying to tell us it was suicides. Uh, maybe it was, but it, does, it sounds awfully coincidental. How long has that been happening? So what is the church's approach? I mean, how does the gospel try to find a way to to make so there's no jew or gentile in our in the body how do we make it so there's no black or white well there's always going to be black or white but mm-hmm. how do we how does the gospel make us one that's what we're trying to get at in in the class
0: and i think it is at a time uh, it is the dark ages in so many ways you know we we literally got this plague the COVID-19, and we've got the reactions that you get uh, in the Middle Ages with uh, regard to Islam. You know, you've got a, a president and a, a political situation that is strangely insipid and evil, and yet embraced by a an evangelical religion that cannot understand what we're, this notion of the the need to confront evil in order to have reconciliation. I, I don't know what to call it other than it is a kind of gnostic religion that we're faced with. That is a kind of emptying out of any real world confrontation with evil. And, of course, the call is always the call of those who are oppressed or victimized, as you were, as I was, in, in, in a kind of, you know, minor or trivial ways in comparison to people who we've literally watched choke to death. Uh, and yet, uh, the, the call continues, you know, the, the kind of blindness to the death-dealing nature of the culture is aided and abetted by a religion, I would call it the evangelical religion, that in some way creates the blindness on behalf of the culture, the nation state, this particular form of leadership. So it's like we're in the perfect storm, but this perfect storm may be the moment in time that this insipid emptiness of forms of religion a kind of gnostic christianity that is so pervasive will show up that its emptiness will be shown up i think that 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 the challenge is always the same challenge that what faced the first church is what faces the church now it's always the problem of empire it's always the problem of the values of the culture co-opting the values of the church and an incapacity in some way to confront those things head on and do it in such a way that is at once the mode of christ in a kind of radical revolutionary but nonviolent subordination to the powers that undermines those powers <laughs> So I think that we can see the radical nature of books like Philemon and Ephesians, how they're brought together, this apocalyptic breaking in. That's what we, Christianity clearly should be. The vacuum that it could fill is clearly open to us, I think, in this present moment in these dark ages.
1: The books that I'm thinking of as you were saying that, one of them that we've actually chosen for this class We chose around week three or week four, and in the middle of a conversation, we've been referring to it so often, and that's Walter Wink's The Powers That Be. Walter describes spirits. He even talks about it in terms of corporations, um, nations, and uh, powers, that there's a spirit there. As you're speaking, I was also thinking of uh, James Cone, and you've read him before, James Cone's book, The Cross and the Lynching Tree. And uh, there's a parallel to Wendell Berry's book on racism that dates back, I think, to the 80s. But Wendell said something that James Cone also articulates about the irony of white slave owners taking their slaves to church. He credits this with uh, the Southern Baptists, which is not hard to make that 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 leap, um, but that bled over in all kinds of evangelicalism. I even saw it in a post from uh, Bob Russell recently defending Western values and American values against the Black Lives Matter movement. and Slave owners taking their slaves to church and acknowledging that their souls were worthy of saving, even if their bodies were, were owned by someone else. There you've got dualism. There you've got an atonement idea that is just about you know going off to heaven somewhere when we die, but has nothing to do with doing justice here. And so I think this is where James Cone's book has been so enlightening for me, in that Cone describes uh, something I think Hauerwas, uh, in the past I've heard him say, is that black Christians ended up as slaves that are introduced to Christianity And then for centuries, they end up doing Christianity better. And I think it's largely because they were, the way James Cone illustrates it, they understood the cross. They got the cross because the cross was thrust on them. Meanwhile, the slave owners were the ones doing the crucifying. So to understand Christianity, to understand how Christianity works, you have to have been on the cross. You can't be the ones doing the crucifying. And somehow in evangelicalism or Western Christianity, I think Barry gets at it in his book, but somehow we got to the point where we put people on crosses. Well, that's always been the temptation, to put somebody else on the cross so we don't have to suffer. And every time we try to dismiss the suffering of people who are the crucified, as James Cone sort of refers to them, they're the ones always being crucified every time we defend the fact that they've been crucified or dismiss it, yeah. we are putting them on a cross in order so that we don't have to be on it with them.
0: Yeah, We've got a whole religious system that supports that. Yeah,
1: In, in fact, that's, that is what we've been told Christianity is. Christianity is somebody else went to the cross so that I don't have to. When in fact Christianity is Jesus went to the cross and said, this is the way of the kingdom, come to the cross with me. What Paul gets at, and I was also influenced a lot by cruciformity, Bruce Gorman's book Cruciformity. He sees that in, in Paul's writings, uh, that's exactly the point: that this is a cruciform lifestyle. Mm-hmm. That it's not just a set of statements to believe to affirm, but that it's a cruciform lifestyle. That's why in my piece the other day, I was the form is the substance. That by doing the cruciform lifestyle, we bear the cross with each other so that how do, how are we united with black brothers and sisters? I think we'll be united when we're willing to, to suffer the cross with them. And that's going to mean not saying things like, well, you know, this is a, you know, the America's not perfect, but you know, it's the best we've got. The police are, there's just a few bad apples. That's not the way the cross is going to do reconciliation. We're going to have to get down on our knees and say, If you're going to strangle George Floyd, why don't you strangle me too?
0: And that then is the theme, I think, of Ephesians. You know what? So what we're describing is not a side issue. It's not a, oh, well, we need to do this whole social justice. But what Paul is describing as salvation is the reconciliation of Jews and Gentiles, the breaking down of the dividing wall of hostility. That he sees that reconciliation as the archetype of all reconciliation that is representative of reconciliation of humanity with God, God with humanity, but also a cosmic reconciliation that he works out in Galatians, but it's there in Ephesians in uh, various forms in the sense that there is no longer the binary Jew, Mm -hmm. Gentile, slave, free, male, female. Right. And so what you get in those identities through difference, I think that's what he's saying. It's not that, oh, we're going to obliterate the categories entirely, but that this mode of doing identity, the mode that I think we just fall into in black, white, American, foreign, you know, whatever, the uh, dualism may be whatever the binary may be that the way you get beyond that the way that you undo that is through the reconciliation work of the cross that we continue so that there is a continuation Paul describes a filling up of the suffering of Christ he describes he's really establishing communities that are going to negotiate this thing. They're going to be in the world. They're going to have the household codes that in some way acknowledge, yes, there are these structures that are in place, but he's always going to tweak them and change them in such a way that they then are themselves a means toward uh, an alternative kind of culture. And so that's the delicate thing that we're always involved in, mm-hmm. uh, that we have to recognize then what it is that enslaves us. And that, that's the great themes of scripture. You know, there is this enslavement. Mm-hmm. We can so spiritualize that. And I'm afraid that's what's happened in many forms of Christianity. The, the oh, it's not literal enslavement, but it's a, kind of otherworldly. And so what is missed is that there is a real world conjoining of the church with the political realities of Israel, that the deliverance, yes, it is a deliverance from sin. But what is sin? I think that's what is missed here. You know, it's not, oh, that we've now got this guilty conscience that we have to take care of because that in some way we've broken a law no sin is the breaking of a relationship it is alienation and this alienation gives rise to violence and this violence then is precisely the thing that we need deliverance from salvation from we're enslaved to an identity that is death dealing and the picture then the apocalyptic picture that is there in Ephesians is a reconstitution of the world, a reconstitution of humanity in this new form of understanding, this reconstituted consciousness that we have in Christ. That's salvation, not a you know a, a, a penal substitution or a divine satisfaction. It was never God's problem it's an ever-present human problem, that maybe at this moment in time, could it be more visible the failure of humanity that is put before us every day in the news? And is there a Christianity that addresses that, or is Christianity simply part of the problem? And I think that's what's at stake in the way we read, especially this book of Ephesians. Ephesians, is kind of the summation, I think, in a very compact way, of Paul's apocalyptic theology. And combining it then with this little book, Philemon, we can see then how Ephesians, Colossians is there too, but how then, uh, what it is that we're to do in the face of empire, in the face of a hostile world. Uh, how is it that the peace of Christ can rule in that situation?
1: There's. I want to get to Philemon because your your approach to Philemon has greatly informed mine, um, and you've always been the 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 best, I think. And and we've had lots of conversations. I've heard you preach on Philemon. We've had lots of conversations about that. What I heard you saying. As you were approaching those binaries and saying that, it's, it, of course, males and females still exist, Jews and Gentiles still exist, and yet there's no more. This is the language that the the Black Lives Matter movement has tried to address, and I know I've tried to address it. And with the, in my small circle, and I know you have the immediate rebuttals you get from the status quo is, well, you know, Black Lives Matter. Well, all lives matter. Uh, it's a way of denying blackness, or of, of people saying, uh, I don't see color. It, that's really a pretending that there is no problem over and against actually addressing the problem. In Christ, of course, I'm going to see black people are black people, and their blackness, uh, because of our culture, their blackness has created terrible problems for them not that it was a problem but that our culture has made it a problem and so i can't pretend like they're not black but at the same time in christ they are my brother or they are my sister of course i see that they are different from me and yet because we are in christ and we share the cross of christ we are brother and sister i think that brings us to the way you talk about philemon the way Paul undermines the injustice of Philemon's slavery while uh, not completely destroying the people in in the culture. He undermines the culture without destroying the people in the culture. And um, I was hoping that you could sort of get at some of that in this podcast and, and what we're doing in this class about Philemon and Onesimus and Philemon's, and Onesimus owning Philemon as a slave.
0: Yeah, the, the question, you know, that, that really is one of what foundation are you building on, and recognizing, first of all, that, that we're talking about a basic restructuring of what it means to be human in Christ. And I think that's the little letter of Philemon gets it the way that you negotiate this. In a sense, Paul, you know, really doesn't do anything about slavery as a general universal social issue. He doesn't say, oh, we've got to knock down this thing. In fact, he almost sidesteps it. The institution as a mode of doing identity. And this, I think, is the value in somebody like Giorgio Agamben, who describes that Crucifying people on crosses or the idea of having what is called homo sacer, bare life, always at disposal, is just part of the way that the city of man is always structured. That there is just a deep structure here that is being challenged. I mean, the very mode of of doing humanity. And so the way that Paul gets at this, I think, is to work not with the manifestations of the structure as you have it in slave-free, that he could, in other words, just oppose the binaries in some way want to do very often what you get in some forms of liberation theology or in Marxist uh, 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 philosophy, and that is you just attack the oppressive part of the pair and you switch the pairs that's always the danger in a violent revolution is that you you miss the deep structure and i think this is what's taking place in a book like philemon that paul calls onesimus then my very heart here is my child that i've given birth to while i'm in prison and of course you can't miss the fact that paul is creating a revolution here in two ways. One, the idea that Onesimus has a value, not just a a value of being human, not just a a value of equality, but Onesimus is Paul for all practical purposes. And this is the way Philemon needs to see Onesimus, that he cannot see him as he has in, in the past.
1: No longer a slave, but a brother.
0: He is no longer a slave. You know, Paul is, of course, playing with the term of useful, which is the name, the meaning of the term of the word Onesimus, that he's kind of useless to you or has been useless. But now he is returned to you as ma- and is made useful. But more than that, he's returned forever to you as a brother. That this approach, then, I think that what is often missed in our understanding, we I, I think that just the deep structures of the way that we're always bound then by these the powers that be, you know, Walter Wink's picture of the principalities and powers. That what we're getting in this reading, in this understanding, is that the deep grammar of Identity through difference. Identity on that basis. We can only be delivered from that through the confrontation of that, that is involved in agape love. In other words, it's not a, just a negative thing, but it is a positive displacement of warm form of identity with a positive peace. It's not just oh, we're going to make these uh, bring these two peoples. Or these two people, they're going to no longer be antagonistic. No, it's a positive joining together in Christ. You know, that this is the breaking down of the wall of hostility that Paul is describing. And so it is a kind of cosmic, you know, Paul is using several images in Ephesians. He's using the image of a kind of cosmic temple and picturing the church as doing the work of the temple in a way that the temple itself could not. The whole point of the Jewish temple was a cosmic representation of God come to earth. But part of that representation in the temple was that in some way there is the dividing wall that continues. And of course the the dividing wall turns out to have been one between peoples, but also that, dividing wall also serve to separate from God. Yeah. And so simultaneously, both are broken down. Heaven comes to earth at the same time that Jew is reconciled to Gentile. And this is what constitutes peace in Christ.
1: What's there in Ephesians, and I think more strongly in Colossians and, or, or Galatians, that that enmity was from us, not from God. The, the enmity was on our side. You, in your piece today, you, you argued about the particular and the, uh,
0: the particular and the universal.
1: I wonder, um, how your take on Philemon is an expansion on that. So Paul, you're right. He doesn't try to attack slavery. In fact, I had a friend that, uh, shared a meme the other day. It was somebody saying white people need to need to stop trying to feel empathy for black people and start solving it solving racism and i said hey you know solving racism sounds like a great idea and i think i know what what solutions are there but we can't just you know blink our eyes and and solve it it's a it's a fairly insidious well planted kind of problem. What we can do is live empathetically and and suffer alongside our black brothers and sisters. Paul doesn't, again, like you said, doesn't solve slavery, but he does work in this very particular instance. And I wonder if that means that all Christianity is supposed to work in these particular with particular people in particular places. And I ran in our discussions to the Yeast metaphor, or to the mustard seed metaphor in, in the teaching of Jesus.
0: The human tendency is toward embracing the abstraction, the universal, to addressing all things at a kind of universal level. Mm-hmm. And at some level, that, that just seems the way to go. But the point of Christianity is, no, that's the problem. That the only way to the universal is through the particular. Yeah. That the only way to resolve the problem is not, oh, we're going to in some way address a worldwide condition. No, Onesimus and Philemon need to be reconciled. In other words, we might think that we have access to the universal God apart from the particular man, Christ. And of course, that's the whole point of Christianity. You only get to the universal. You only get to the, the essence of things through the way those essences are presented to us in the particular. That the life of Christ, this particular man in this particular place, is the access then to who God is. And I don't believe there, there is any other access. That is not just a one-time event, but that points us forever away from the grasp and this is of course the mm-hmm. grand irony of the period in which we live the enlightenment the the modern rationalism you know that it, it, it is all uh, but i just think that that's always there in the in the greek mm-hmm. platonic forms That there is always this sense that we can just kind of skip over the world and go right to the universal skip over the particulars and Grasp the the one thing.
1: What it does, though, is it requires us to think in terms outside of the creation narrative. Um, the The creation narrative is that God created us to be particular people in a particular spot, and to to know one another as particular and to know the place as particular. This is why I love Wendell Berry so much. When he talks about he talks about issues of conservation or Uh, environmental protections his solution is always we'll get to know the place you're in that's how you're gonna that's how you can solve it Um, you've got to get to know the place that you live in he he never puts any faith in these big powerful solutions that are gonna solve all of this because in order to get the power you have to do the abuse that the power has has caused I, I get a lot of that out of Walter Wink too right you can't join the powers in order to solve the problems of the powers, you know, we've got to be powerless.
0: Yeah, that's uh, Soren Kierkegaard. Uh, The human tendency is towards abstractions, right? It's toward generalizations, it's toward, you know, I'm too busy with these big things, I can't deal with the small minor things that are right here before us. But of course, That's the way that Christ gets killed. That these people, the Jews, the Pilate, and the Romans, that, well, they're concerned with the nation, with being Romans. They're concerned with this corporate identity. And if it requires the death of one non-entity, the death of this particular man, well, that's a cheap price to pay for worldwide. And of course, Rome you know literally is, is a world uh, power, maybe the only world power like that in history. Mm-hmm. And so that quite literally, the death of a singular particular individual. And that is not just what's happening with Christ. That's just the way that human history has functioned, that the power and the life of the city is built upon what is excluded from the city. And what Christ is doing is exposing that the life of the city is a lie. The, the human city, I'm not mean, being anti-urban here, but the idea of the polis, the way that we would organize ourselves, the politic of human beings is always going to be built upon this identity through a kind of difference that is necessarily exclusive. So that slavery... Certainly it's a, a kind of biopolitics, it's a kind of social engineering, it's a kind of way of capturing an, an energy you know, that uh, is just there pervasive in human history. But it's also then the means by which the masters forever make themselves masters and identify themselves then on the basis of their power of life and death over the slave. Christ comes then and dies the death of a slave and forever exposes the means of the city, the power of that politic, the principality and power at work in the world. we just got to get a a picture of that deep structure and understand that the cities and and nations of man are not the city of God. Those are two very different things, and the politic are two very... Different
1: politics. That's what you got in the piece today. And I I was just trying to remember the title. I read it just this morning. You called it Why All Lives Matter Misses the Cross. Yeah. But that is is exactly the the same response that the priest in uh, in Jesus' trial narrative gives. Well, we've got it, it's it's better for one person to die than to save the, 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 the large mass. Um, What Black Lives Matter has tried to say is, no, these people who are being murdered, they have an inherent value as individuals. And we claim to be a place that values the individual. And yet the response, the immediate response from, again, the status quo is, well, all lives matter. And what that really is saying is, well, since we all matter, we have to sacrifice these individuals in order to maintain this uh this whatever we've got here this system or the status quo we have to these these are the necessary sacrifice that's the fear i think that you see a lot of people have about about police well we've got to have these police they're the ones that keep us safe they protect our freedoms or whatever the assumption is that these police are absolutely necessary And so we've got to sacrifice some people to them in order to maintain this. And if they require a sacrifice, we're just going to have to live with that. It's regrettable, but we're going to have to live with it. I think in the class, what we're trying to get at is we're looking now at at riots, um, although I think a lot of the riots wouldn't be riots if they weren't met with such resistance. I think a lot of it is protests that become riots, just like you know Martin Luther King. Everybody talks about how he was a peaceful protester, but you can find tons of pictures of people coming against him with hoses and um, riot shields and that kind of thing, too. So whereas we're seeing riots and we're seeing violence, how does Christianity work in the class? We're getting at how Christianity, how we as the church are going to be able to um to work towards reconciliation and one of the one of the pieces we have is in the last week our goal is to put together a a reconciliation plan where we can talk about ways that we can do reconciliation in our specific in our particular communities with specific people who have uh, in, endured uh, terrible injustice how do we as the church uh, find no male or female, no Jew or Gentile, no black or white, uh, no slave or free. How do we start living that
0: out? Yeah, I think there there are several approaches, insights that come with Ephesians. You're you're not going to be able to deal with the world right before you until the organization of that world is opened up too. that. It's all it's almost like we don't have access to to what's happening before our eyes. You know why? Uh, a simple question: What what is taking place in Minneapolis with the Minneapolis police force? Why is why does George Floyd die? Why are there these continual deaths of black people? It just seems to be countless numbers of lies. I'm afraid that what we have in uh, typical th- theology and th- the thing that James Cone uses is the Theological realism of Reinhold Niebuhr. Here, that Niebuhr may have been the, the the premier theologian of his age. He really was insight. He had great insight to a lot of things. He was the favorite theologian of you know the Kennedys of kind of the liberal democratic period of the time. He's the favorite theologian of Jimmy Carter, John Kennedy, but also of even of Barack Obama. Mm-hmm. And so it's not that Niebuhr is not profound, but what he misses, I think, is the message of this class, the message of Ephesians. And that is that we do not begin with the imagined reality that we have. You know, he calls it theological realism. Oh, you just got to deal with the world as it is. No, the whole point of Christianity is the world as it is, is what's being overturned, what's being upset, what's being undone in Christ. Just that basic idea. You, the example of of Bob Russell, but I think he is just yeah. typical of the conversation, or maybe the lack of conversation that you get about the challenge, or even the recognition of the, these deep structures. And it's just there in Ephesians. And so Niebuhr, mm-hmm. uh, maybe the you know Niebuhr prides himself on having the heart of a poet, the insight of a poet. That it's only men who, you know, he, he's describing who have this, this power of intelligence and insight. And yet he misses, he misses the, the whole role that he could have played. Martin Luther King Jr. asked him to sign a, a, a letter that was sent to Eisenhower to pr- protect children in schools that, as desegregation was occurring. Niebuhr refuses. He's happy that the civil rights bills are passed, but he's also happy that the slow period, you know, the allowance for the loopholes is put in. So that he's always allowing for the realism of this world to in some way be be determinative of his action and ultimately determinative of what he's able to see. And of course, the specific thing that he's blind to This is Cone's point, but I think this is the Christian point, that what we will always be blinded to is the lynching tree, is the cross, that it is not obvious to him, which it should have been to a Christian of his depth of intellect, what was happening to black people on the lynching tree. He can't deal with it. He never mentions it. And this is the the great sadness, the the reality that we're dealing with now. The realities of the lynching tree continue Mm -hmm. through the police state, through the culture as we have it, that black lives then are the expendable lives where the realities of the cross are not brought into play and to challenge those structures. So that's the great tragedy of the... America, not just of America, but of the American theological understanding, liberal and fundamentalist and conservative. There's a sense in which that reality is not addressed. And so it's interesting that just as in Christ, you know, we have the voice of the one who is oppressed. We have the voice of the one who is lynched. And it may be the sense that It is always that voice that speaks the truth, that is able to see the truth, that the oppressed see the truth in a way that the oppressor is blind to. And that is the mode of Christianity of Christ that we are to take up and see in a way that otherwise we're blind to. Otherwise, there is just an incapacity to see because of our very identity is built on the deception that blinds.
1: Niebuhr couldn't, you know, you, you talk about him having the, his claim he has the heart of a poet, but you know, the great poets of scripture were prophets. They were um, calling for, the calling out the, the greed and the abuses of the culture. It's, a, I, I feel like, we, we kind of always end up at the same, back at the same places, that the cross is just antithetical to the power structures in the world. It really is the solution. I use that term particularly, I guess. It is the solution to these things is the bearing of the cross.
0: The interesting conjunction of people in New York, James Cone is teaching at Union, was teaching before. Uh, that it was Niebuhr was at Union but it's Dietrich Bonhoeffer who also comes to Union in his one year that that he spent in the United States and he encounters Niebuhr and he's familiar with all that but of course the theology that that Bonhoeffer is taken with it's there as a church life and that is the the Baptist Church in Harlem he's highly unimpressed with American Christianity But he's very taken with the embodied christianity of the black church and of course it's that experience it's a conversion experience that bonhoeffer will take back with him in his confrontation with the nazis in in germany that he's going to die a martyr's death but there is the sense that the preparation for that was to live life for a period with those who understood what it is to die on crosses, yeah, and then he too will be hung by the Germans.
1: And again, so much of the religion that that we recognize as Christianity, or people recognize as Christianity here, is an avoidance of the cross. And Bonhoeffer, once you've read Bonhoeffer, you have to do it pretty blindly, uh, or be trying really hard not to recognize that he he says that when Christ. Christ calls someone he bids him to come and die. You don't do Christianity outside of the cross of Christ and that it's your cross, not just Jesus's cross, but it's your cross as well. And yeah, that I exactly it he was impressed with the Harlem Christians uh, more so than he was with the the folks in the seminary churches. And that that is a a great that's just a great anecdote. Is there anything else you'd like to add about the, the course
0: itself? I'm really excited about this course. I think it, it as I've already said, it comes a kind of an interesting time. That here we have, I think, a light, maybe a small light, maybe a flickering light, in the midst of what seems like an overwhelming darkness. And so I think that if we can hear again what Paul is saying in Ephesians in Philemon. Uh, In his apocalyptic theology, I think we can understand how there is hope in the midst of darkness.
1: Yeah, I think we're going to have some pretty interesting discussions just because of the volatile age that we're in right now, which, you know, it's always been volatile. Um, Even in the last 50 years, it's been volatile, but the last uh, six months has just stirred up all kinds of, I guess, volatility. And it, it should make for some interesting reflection um, in our conversations, mm-hmm. especially with some of the stuff we'll be reading and Absolutely. and
0: sharing. So, Absolutely. yeah, I'm excited, too. Yeah, we'll put up a link with this uh, podcast that you can go to Plowshares Bible Institute and register for the class. The class starts on July 6th. Jason always has to correct me. I'm always, I'm always saying the wrong month. July 6th. It'll run for eight weeks, I think, through uh, the end of August, and will certainly uh, uh, allow for we we sometimes extend the end of it to get everything in. But I think it's a timely class for the, the moment that we're in.
1: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, awesome. Well, thank you for uh, the conversation. Thank you, Jason. It's always fun. <laughs> awesome.
0: <laughs> thank you for listening to this episode of forging plowshares you can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org donate